Shut up and sit down. Welcome to the Edu Third Space podcast, where we address the important questions what is education? Where does it occur? And who gets to decide? Hello, folks. Welcome back, or welcome to any new listeners we may have gathered. Today we are going back to discuss museum education or learning in museums, which if you have been following along with this podcast, you will know that we spoke to Kristen Otto in episode two, and she discussed um, museum education. Today I have on Sarah Hatcher, who Kristen recommended during her interview, and Sarah is the head of programs and education for Indiana University's Museum of Archaeology and Anthropology. Anyone who's familiar with IU, the museum used to be called the Mathers Museum of World Culture. So Sarah speaks with us today about museum education broadly, kind of her focus. She's also a PhD student, so her focus on um, social studies curriculum and taking a more anthropological lens when studying social studies. Um, and we kind of diverge into a bunch of different topics, one of which is how museum or schools can learn from the type of education or learning that takes place in museums. Um, I'm sure you have noticed, or maybe not, I certainly have noticed that I, even when I'm trying to have a conversation that does not involve schools, I somehow bring it back to schools. Um, this is, I guess, my default programming, um, although I know changing the structure of schools is very difficult, which I hope to get more into in this podcast, um, if not impossible. But for some reason, I'm still committed to the cause because I keep bringing it up in every episode. So just to throw that out there. So I want to let you all know that I have been doing the podcast weekly. It's going to switch to bi-weekly, um, primarily because of resource restrictions. Um, I don't do a whole lot of editing of the podcast, but I do, you know, the intro to the podcast, the intro to the episodes, and then there's the podcast episode itself and the transition of music, whatnot. So it does take time and I, you know, check for sound quality and get rid of any bad parts. Um, so if you enjoy this podcast and have the means to support it, I would greatly appreciate it, which would allow me more time to focus on editing and maybe eventually get back to an episode a week. But for now, I'm going to switch to bi-weekly. If you do want to support us, you can do so by visiting the website, www.edu3rdspace.com. You can give there. It would also help me to get an appropriate microphone so the sound quality improves. And I'd eventually like to send microphones to each of my guests so that way it sounds like we're in the same room together and not using Zoom, which is what we are doing. Also, another way to support this podcast is to subscribe to it anywhere where you're listening and write us a review so it's easier for other people to find us. Um, as always, I hope you enjoy this conversation. Hi, Sarah. How are you? I'm doing well. How are you? Doing well. Thanks for joining me today to talk about museums. 
So you're in learning in museums, education museums, whatnot. So your conversation will kind of be an extension of, as you know, I already interviewed Kristen Otto. Mm -hmm. So it'll kind of be an extension and more from the perspective of working in the education sector yourself um, and how that uh, kind of plays out more with kids rather than the general population of people that go to museums. So I'll have you start by just giving a background, kind of your trajectory in your personal education, as well as the field of education, however you want to describe it up to this point. Sure. Um, like a lot of people, I think I went into my undergraduate experience with one particular focus, and that focus was becoming a social studies teacher. and. Um, Circumstances didn't allow that to happen after I graduated because I moved across the country and um, it was very expensive to get a teaching license in Oregon at the time. So I worked at Barnes and Noble, which though it is not a school or an educational facility um, in any sort of traditional way, we did a lot of programming that lent itself to offering opportunities for particularly the preschool crowd with story hours and opportunities for parents with small children to get together and communicate. Um, I also learned a lot at Barnes and Noble as far as how to teach people. I did a lot of training as a manager. And so that was, I think, formative in how I think about adults as learners, which has been a useful skill for me to have. Uh, after a while, I decided that I'd like to return to school. I wasn't quite sure what I wanted to do at that point. I thought maybe I'd become a librarian. Uh, but instead, I found myself in the Arts Administration program at the University of Oregon, where I specialized in museums. Fast forward several years, and I'm here at IU uh, in my capacity as a museum educator and more recently in my capacity also as a PhD student in curriculum and instruction. Okay, cool. So what is your uh, research focus for your PhD? My research focus um, is pretty broad still. I'm still relatively early in my coursework. Um, the direction that I'm looking at at the moment is why we don't use anthropology to teach in so you know to teach the social studies because anthropology really does have a lot to give as far as how we learn about other people and how we come to understand other cultures um, there was a great push to do that in the 1960s and 1970s and it kind of fell away so i'm probing that i'm also very interested in this intersection that museums find themselves in where you find the informal education and formal education coming together in a variety of different ways. Um, I'm very curious also about how we can teach people to question museums. Museums have a reputation for being authoritative sources of knowledge and um, particularly in the social and political climate that we currently find ourselves in, uh, I really feel like it's important to teach people how to question sources and how to identify biases in particular sources and things like that. There's a lot of work being done in those regards uh, when it comes to the internet and how people, you know, surf the web and find sources online and how they verify if they're trustworthy or not. 
I would like to do a similar investigation around museums, um, particularly focusing most likely on pre-service teachers and how we can help them learn to evaluate museums before they take their students and are, you know, surprised or astounded by what they find. Okay, interesting. All right, there are a lot of things that I want to go back to. But, <laughs> <laughs> but first, can you just tell me how would you define education? Oh, that is a huge question. Um, I tend to think of education as a process. Um, it's, I, I'm really fond of that Dewey quote where he frames education as a process of living and not a preparation for future living. Um, so I guess a succinct definition would be a process of facilitating or providing opportunities so that somebody can learn. And I think for myself, I very much view education as um, allowing people to learn so that they can hopefully help make the world a better place. And I realize that sounds a little Pollyanna, um, but I really do hope that through good education, people acquire the skills and the knowledge and the understandings that they need to make their own lives better and hopefully to contribute to making the world a better place. Okay, and um, you can pass on this question if it doesn't apply, but how does your definition of education kind of frame how you approach museum learning? Oh, that's an awesome question. So I think, um, the way that I tend to, when people ask me what museum education is, I tend to define it as a form of education that engages diverse audiences in making meaningful experiences or facilitating connections between people, collections, and ideas. And so I think one of the ways that um, my definition of museum education and my broader definition go together is in that idea of process and helping people make connections. Okay, great. So um, when you're working with pre-service teachers and evaluating museums, I don't know if you listened to the episode with um, Kristen, but one of the things that I was curious about that she had brought up was, you know, there's a person who is curating the experience in a museum. Mm -hmm. You, the me as the um, person visiting the museum, I don't ever see that person or rarely. My experience is I don't see that person. Um, I don't get to talk to them. So how do you oh. interrogate the ideas being presented in the museum? Uh, it's okay. We just had a fire truck go by here. <laughs> There's some background noise there. The joys of being at home. Um, so how are you working with pre-service teachers to interrogate the ideas and how information is presented in museums if you don't really, if the pre-service teacher can't necessarily access the curator? Ah, and this, so this is part of the spiel that happens before we even go into the exhibit halls, is we walk through how do you read an exhibit, um, how do exhibits come to be, and we do talk in that conversation about the fact that every single exhibit is the result of a person's curiosity, any person's questions, 
And of course, just like every paper you write has your particular bias in it, every single exhibit that gets produced has the inherent biases or ideas or ideals, depending on how you want to look at it, of whomever curated that exhibit. Um, it, it is interesting because traditionally, unless an exhibit was curated by some big famous artist or something, we tend to obscure who that curator is. Uh, we're moving more and more to being open and having um, the equivalent to like a byline on an exhibit so that people come to realize that, hey, there's people behind this. Okay, yeah, that's interesting. Because I was thinking with, because it's kind of similar to, you know, there are things written on walls or plaques or whatever that people can read, but you don't have necessarily have the tools with you to interrogate that. Whereas a book, like I could then look at the reference list, go back, you know, there are just like methods that seem to be a little bit easier um, mm -hmm. book reading. So one of the things we've done, because you're right, you can't check the bibliography of an exhibit. Um, we've developed over several years of doing this kind of a checklist that asks people to evaluate like whose stories are being told whose voices are being present in those, in the telling of those stories, and whose voices are absent. Um, what kind of language is being used? Is it gendered? Uh, are, you know, is it blatantly Marxist? Um, there are certain vocabularies that we as members of our community and members of, you know, the broader society come to recognize signal certain things and learning to see those in a museum context, um, I think is a helpful helpful way of being able to start to interrogate what you're seeing while you're there. Okay, and is this a way, you mentioned that um, museums tend to be authoritative. Is this one way that you're trying to also get away from that is? Yeah, I want people to stop and not just blindly assume that a museum is right. Um, just because a place is a museum doesn't mean that there's good scholarship happening behind it. Um, I've seen, and this is gonna be truly horrifying, I have seen an exhibit of quote unquote Native America where it was a Pocahontas Barbie doll and a Beanie Baby Buffalo. Um, obviously that's incredibly problematic and that is not representative of good scholarship or good museum practice. Um, so we have to help people understand that just because it's in a museum doesn't mean it's right. Mm -hmm. And that's a way that you're working with pre-service teachers, I imagine, is helping them to like know, first of all, know what type of museum they're walking into and be able mm -hmm. to maybe prepare their students before going and then debrief after? Exactly. Okay. And I wanna go back to um, this idea of integrating anthropology more into uh, the study of social studies, or I guess that might be redundant to say it that way, <laughs> but um, just go back to that idea. Can you explain it a little bit more, what that entails? 
Like what would sure. a social studies class look like if it was more anthropological? Oh gosh. Um, so there's actually some really good curriculum um, that were part of a broader movement known as the new social studies. And this was predominantly, these are things being written in the 60s and then implemented in the very early 1970s. Although you see remnants of it um, much, much later. And what it winds up looking like is a lot of case studies, a lot of talking about the tools that get used in the study of other people. Like what is ethnography? What are field notes? What is material culture? How do these things help us understand other people? Um, what that would look like in the here and now of 2020 is something that I haven't um, delved into because I've been looking more at the historical um, side of this question. I think that um, one of the ways that this could be done also dovetails with, with uh, more critical multicultural aspects of education. And again, you'll, you'll notice I'm really into questions. Um, helping people learn to ask the questions is to me almost as important, is actually more important than just handing people information. Um, the world is so full of knowledge at this point that there's no way anyone's ever gonna learn all of the things. So we have to help people figure out how to find the information and how to evaluate the information that they're looking for um, to understand a particular topic. Okay, gotcha, gotcha. Okay, and switching kind of back to museums. Um, so do you, I think you mentioned this, but you have experience working in museums. Yes, I've okay, been- That was before the PhD, correct? Yeah, I've been a museum educator for uh, just shy of 15 years. Okay, and where have you most recently worked? I am here at the Mathers Museum, which um, in three weeks becomes the Indiana University Museum of Archaeology and Anthropology. Oh, cool. Yeah, I did my undergrad at Indiana University as well, and I took a museum studies class, so I helped curate uh, an exhibit at the Mathers Museum. Oh, very cool. So was that <laughs> in a class with Judy Kirk? Oh my gosh. I graduated in 2005, so I can't... Probably Judy. Recall anyone <laughs> that I worked with at that time. Um, yeah, because I had my minor was in fine arts, and that was one of the classes that I, I um, argued my way into that minor in fine arts. That's fantastic. Did you enjoy it? Oh, I loved it. Yeah, it was great. Yeah, at one point in time, I wanted to be an archaeologist. Um, you know, it's one of those, we used to get archaeology magazine, my dad did, and so I don't really know what happened to that dream, but over time, <laughs> uh, that kind of shifted to being a school teacher. So yeah, I've always, I love going to museums. Um, but anyway, so how do you, do you work with young people or kids often? Honestly, not as often as I would like, because if it were as often as I would like, it would be every single day. Um, but it is not um, due to kind of the rhythm of the public school calendar and standardized testing and all of those other external forces. 
the bulk of my work with kiddos tends to be after standardized testing season is over, so late April and May, which is a comparatively short portion of the school year. Um, the other year I did get to do a 16 week project with a group of kiddos at a local elementary school. And that was really fun. Uh, they, we curated an exhibit together. Oh, fun. That is fun. Yeah. So when working with kids or curating a part of the museum with kids in mind, and of what is different between that and how you would approach uh, adult learning? Some of the basics are, of course, the same. Um, you need to make it eye-catching, make it approachable, make it something that can be easily understood. Um, and not everyone will agree with the next statement, but I think that children and adults are not necessarily all that different. Um, all of us like to touch things and pick things up. But when we do an exhibit that's specifically catered for kids, that element of doing something or touching something um, really has to be considered more strongly. Um, we want to provide opportunities for them to be able to draw the artifact that they're looking at or touch a replica or do something like that. But we also have to help them understand then when they go into the next exhibit that wasn't curated just for kids, that there's maybe different rules in that space. So there's a lot of um, considerations as far as like the explicit things you're teaching and doing, but also some of the implicit messages that you're giving them also have to be considered in the design of that space. Okay, and do you apply any certain type of learning theories when you're setting up exhibits? Learning theories, um, I'll admit are not one of my strengths. I do very much on a personal level ascribe to social cultural theories of learning. Um, and that's pretty common in museum literature as well. So what we tend to, and what I tend to really focus on is how the museum experience facilitates learning. Um, because I think the process of coming into the building and looking and thinking and doing those, you know, done in a social fashion with your classmate or your family or your friends are really what create the, the moments that you remember. And sometimes the learning isn't what happens in that exact moment, but it happens in, in part in the remembering of what happened. And it's that connection that you make, um, you know, tomorrow or five years from now. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and are there the ways that a museum sets up a space for learning um, applicable to the school? Or are there any recommendations that you would give a school to design a space better for learning? Oh, that is a big question. Yeah, you mentioned standardized tests and that they come to you after those are over. I could go into a whole tirade about that. <laughs> so I'll just, you know, we'll start with how could uh, the ways you organize learning in museums be applied to schools? Well, I think one of the things, 
gosh, there's just, there's so many ways in which the work of museums and the work of classroom teachers complement each other. Um, it's sometimes hard for me to think about how to compare and contrast them. So ask me your question one more time, sorry. Sure, and I can give you a little, like an example from another, my very first podcast episode was Jen Carnop. So she started working in museums. That's kind of her, she got her teaching certificate, couldn't get a job or, yeah, I think that was the issue that she wasn't able to find a job. So she started working at a museum. And so in her mind, that was like, the best way, maybe not the best way to learn, but it was one of the ideal ways to learn. And so then when she got into a school, she was kind of like, oh, wait a minute, you know, things don't really overlap necessarily the way that she would have liked. So she started a charter school that was Montessori-like, uh, the way it was designed. So that was kind of the more individualistic learning is what she took away from a museum to the classroom environment, like what could be helpful in the classroom environment. So is there anything like that that you've noticed, like the museum does things this way and it would be helpful if the classroom also did things this way? Mm -hmm. I think it's one of the really cool things that could be done, and this is a little bit what I did with the, the project that I alluded to earlier with the kids, is the process of curating an exhibit is in some ways very similar to doing a term paper. But, you know, in addition to that written text that you produce, you're also, you know, coming up with a display and the physical objects to help convey your ideas. So I think one thing, and I've seen it done a little bit in some local elementary schools, is using some of the ideas that go behind ex exhibitions to allow for a different way to, for people to express their knowledge. I think we've gotten very comfortable with written formats. Um, we're less comfortable as a society with formats that rely heavily on the visual, but I think there's a lot of opportunities for um, students, whether they're in kindergarten or graduate students or professors seeking tenure, um, to demonstrate learning and knowledge through the development of an exhibition. Okay, yeah. Yeah, so are there kind of like bigger ways that you would fundamentally change the school uh, kind of to apply what you've learned working in museums? I think I would be inclined to go, well, I mean, I would do a lot of things if we could completely <laughs> reshape American schools. I would do away with the idea of grade levels. Um, it would be probably much more project-based. Um, I just finished reading The Metaphysical Club, and uh, that was a really interesting book that ultimately wound up talking a lot about Dewey um, and a little bit about his laboratory school. But I think there's, of course, the laboratory school that John Dewey help develop was not perfect, but I think that method of education is closer to what a lot of people would do better with. Um, I have two kids. My youngest is in high school still, and the amount of time I tell her, 
uh, or spend telling her, you know, you just have to get through this. You have to do your best and you just have to get through this breaks my heart. Um, because I was that kid who just loved to learn and loved to read and loved to be at school. Um, but I'm coming to recognize through their experiences and also paying more attention that there's an awful lot of people who don't like to go to school. And part of it's the structure of school, but part of it's also just that it feels like jumping through hoops, not like authentic learning. And so I think by using a, a laboratory or project-based approach, which, you know, maybe that's curating an exhibit, um, you'd allow for greater freedom uh, and uh, a much larger ability to actually investigate topics that are interesting to the learner. Um, of course, you have to learn how to do math and you have to learn to read before you can do those things. But um, once the fundamentals are in place, I would love to see students be allowed to pursue their own interests a lot more. Yeah, uh, I'm with you on that. <laughs> <laughs> Yeah, I think the grade levels is one of the, yeah, it's, you're doing something that the teacher has told you to do to get a grade to move on to the next level. It's just not very um, intrinsically motivating. You know, it's like no. the incentive structure is way off from what they claim that they're trying to achieve out of schooling. Right. And, you know, there are kids who can read at a sixth grade level, but their math skills are at a third grade level. So where should they actually be? <laughs> right, right. So, yeah, I think we have a lot of work to do in uh, rethinking how schools are going to be. Mm -hmm. Do you foresee that actually happening anytime soon? That is a question we were just having last night at home. Mm -hmm. um, I think COVID-19 is going to force us to engage with school in a different way. Um, I suspect that it won't be the radical reforming that many people would like. Um, but I do think we're going to have to see some changes, uh, just for very practical reasons. It's, you know, not sensible to put 1600 kids in a building together right now. Mm -hmm. What we're going to do, uh, I don't know. Um, hopefully museums can play a big part in answering that question because I think that if we were able to eliminate some of the structural barriers for getting kids from their classroom to the museum, um, we'd be able to offer them a lot. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and I feel the same way about libraries. You mentioned perhaps, you know, at one point yeah. you thought you might be a librarian. So I kind of see obviously museums and libraries are different, but they serve as this other way to engage in learning and be educated often that kids prefer over mm -hmm. going to school. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it would be great if every neighborhood had its own library so that kids didn't have to make the trek downtown or across town to be able to access those resources. Um, it's an interesting thought experiment to think about you know, what would happen if every kid could do an after-school program that was at a museum and or a library and had access to not just 
normal, normal in air quotes there, um, staff that do those programs, but also to exhibit designers or curators, you know, what's, or preparators. We have on our staff somebody who does absolutely stunningly gorgeous woodwork. Um, and that's not a skill that is always thought about in conjunction with museums, but there's a lot of different career paths that can be informed by skills that you acquire through museum work. Um, and being able to kind of tap into that would be, I think, really powerful for some kids. Mm -hmm. And do you talk to pre-service teachers about thinking about the trajectory of schooling, how it might change or bringing ideas from museums into school, anything like that? Or do you just Generally, I have them for 75 minutes once a semester. Um, okay. So <laughs> I don't. Um, we tend to really focus in just on the idea of interrogating the exhibit um, and the big, big, big question of what is culture. Um, they tend to come here as part of a class that's looking at teaching in a pluralistic society. So it has a, a pretty um, tight curriculum focus. And so we don't get to go down that path, although it would be absolutely incredible if we could. Yeah, because I would ask my, um students. So as a side note, I don't teach this course anymore because I'm finishing up my dissertation, but I taught in the School of Education for pre-service teachers. They can do their normal Indiana student teaching to get licensure, or they could participate in Global Gateway for Teachers, which was mm -hmm. our program. Yeah. So I was the associate instructor for the Navajo Nation program, and I went through that myself. And so we talk a lot about culture and cultural learning or learning about your culture um, and how that happens in the Navajo Nation considering you know kids school is compulsory so you have to go to school unless you go to a tribal school there is no um, cultural element typically of the school day so one of the things we would talk about that's just aside to say we would talk about the difference between education and school and oftentimes mm -hmm. they would look at me like there what do you mean like it's the same thing you know it's the question i really had to probe it to say no think about education and school is one place where that occurs now think about school and so that was what prompted me to ask that question about if you try to interrogate the idea that it doesn't have that you can learn in other places and it doesn't have to look exactly like a school i wish that uh we did have time to to go down that road because I think it is really important for people to think about the fact that education doesn't have to end when you quit going to school, whether that's when you're 18 or 22 or 40 something. Um, <laughs> we, we do have the ability to be lifelong learners and museums and libraries are great places for those things to take place. Um, but I think, you know, it is in part cultural if you're not enculturated or raised going to those types of places, then it might not be obvious to you that that's an option. Or if you live in a place where those, uh, you know, opportunities aren't easy to grab, then you're not going to be able to take advantage of them. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Um, 
Sorry, I had a thought that has now escaped me. I did want to go back to, in the beginning, you were talking about Barnes and Noble, that you had worked there. I had no yeah. idea that Barnes and Noble offered programming. So what, yeah. what type of programming do they typically do? So, it, um, and I haven't worked at Barnes and Noble uh, for, I guess, about 15 years at this point. Um, but when I was there, we actually had a community relations manager, and that person was in charge of setting up um, talks, author signings, story hours, um, book clubs. So those were some of the, the opportunities that I would at least put in the bucket of informal learning or learning that takes place outside of school. And uh, I spent many a Tuesday morning being the story hour lady and quite enjoyed that. Nice, that's fun. Yeah. Yeah, I love bookstores and libraries. I could spend all of my time in them, so, so that sounds exciting. Yeah. Yeah, so I, it just occurred to me the question I wanted to ask you. So I don't know if you remember, in one of the earlier emails, we were, you know, when we were going back and forth, I had mentioned that I study, like, who makes decisions in the education sector, specifically related to schooling. Mm -hmm. um, and you had mentioned that you've been thinking about that, too, since the... Uh, schools have been closed uh, because of the pandemic. I don't know if you remember mentioning that. But, I don't. <laughs> okay. Well, are there ways that you've kind of, because I think you're referencing your kids um, and noticing mm -hmm. kind of what's going on with them. Like, I'm just wondering if you think of anything that's kind of been illuminated that you've learned about what's going on in schooling or who's making these types of decisions for schools that you might not have thought about before. I don't know that it's really illuminated anything I hadn't thought about before. I think it has highlighted the fact that the U.S. has a highly decentralized educational system. And, you know, we could probably talk for hours about whether that's a good thing or a bad thing and what the ramifications of that are. Yep, um, lots of opinions on that. <laughs> yeah, yeah, right. It's... Uh, you know, this last Friday, the state of Indiana released their recommendations for returning to school, but then there's lots of, but your local district might have other ideas. Mm -hmm. And so I have so much sympathy for the decision makers in our school district right now, trying to pull together all of the best evidence to use to make an informed decision about what's safe um, and not only what's safe, but how do we balance the physical safety of our children with the emotional and social needs that they have. Because going to school isn't just about the quote unquote book learning. There's a lot of social and emotional learning that happens in both the classes called social and emotional learning and in just, you know, the lunchroom and the hallway and band practice. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's, yeah, I, I do not envy people who have to make these decisions right now. Um, okay, yeah, that's interesting. Yeah, and you're right, that could be a whole other podcast episode. <laughs> <laughs> Um, so we'll end with first, is there anything that I have brought up or that you've brought up that you'd like to go back to or expand upon? I don't know. I feel like I've done a lot of babbling. Um. You haven't. <laughs> no, I don't 
Nothing immediately jumps to mind. Okay, then we'll end with kind of the big question. We've gotten to it a little bit, but pandemic aside, is there any kind of vision or maybe even keeping the pandemic in mind, any vision you have for education, not just in the school, education in the school and beyond the school, um, how things could look in the future? I think one of my dreams would be to ensure that every student who has, who lives in a country where museums are a thing, because I recognize that museums are very much a, a Western construct. I would love to ensure that every student has access to at least one museum experience sometime in their K-12 schooling and that in addition to museums, they're also given the opportunity to attend a play and go to a symphony. Um, you know, it's a well-worn trope that the arts are the first thing to get cut when budgets get tight, um, but it's a trope for a reason. And I think one of the things that I really feel is important is to bring the arts and humanities back into schools in a more central way. Um, I, of course, think that STEM is important. You know, we can't live in the modern world without science, technology, engineering, and math. Um, but I think that we've lost the social studies and we've diminished the role of English in the curriculum and that making those a stronger presence, I think, would help us find different ways to tackle some of the societal issues that we're currently facing. Yeah. Are you familiar with the trivium? No. So the there's different levels. So the trivium is just the basic level, and it's grammar, logic, and rhetoric. And so that is something that people advocate should be taught really early on because it really, it's a skill. It's like a critical thinking skill that, you know, you build at an early age. So that way you're able to interrogate text, arguments, be able to engage in discourse, um, things of that nature. So I think it's Dorothy Sayer. If you want to look into her, she wrote some long article about, you know, advocating. But that kind of came to mind when you were talking about English and social studies and <clears throat> And just being able to walk into a museum also and interrogate what you're being told or what's being presented to you. Um, so that's one of my many ideas for how uh, formal education <laughs> could change uh, is to include that in a very young age. And hopefully I'm trying to get someone who works at a trivium style school to come on to kind of explain it a little more, but something yeah, I want to look into. Yeah, that fascinating. Yeah. That would be great. I think, um, Another way that schools, you know, another big thing that I would like to see schools doing or education at large doing is um, encouraging the use of visual literacy. You know, again, acknowledging that we learn in more ways than just through written texts, that film and photographs and even memes are incredibly helpful in helping us understand the world we live in. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, and they're engaging, you know, it's kind of mm -hmm. like a hook to bring people in. And, and that's something you can even interrogate, like, 
what is this image making you feel, you know, things like that. Cause it's, if what images are often used is to you know, yep. steer you in a certain direction. All right, cool. Well, thank you, Sarah, for joining me today. Thank you for having me. All right, have a good one. You too. Thanks.